certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. One of the key factors in deciding Bradley Edwards' guilt or innocence will be the forensic evidence, including material collected from the burial sites of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon. Hi everyone, I'm Natalie Bongiolo, joined by the West's Emily Moulton and Tim Clark. Hi to you both. Hi guys. Um, we'd also like to welcome Brendan Chapman. Now, Brendan, you're a forensic scientist with expertise in murder investigations and cold cases. But just to clarify for podcast listeners, you're not directly involved in this Claremont case. Yeah, thank you. And uh, that's correct. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about your experience as a forensic expert? What sort of things you do and what sort of things you've done? Yeah, sure. So um, historically, Prior to um, my role at Murdoch, uh, I was intimately involved with um, West Australian government in um, major crime crime scenes and um, forensic DNA analysis um, for the for the state agencies related to that. Um, and since then, I've now moved into a role at Murdoch University where um, I can use my, uh, I suppose, forensic expertise and experience to train the next generation of forensic students and forensic scientists um, and also expand that as well to undertake research in forensics and around forensic DNA and cold case investigations as well. From a professional um, point of view, have, have you got a great interest in this case? I mean, all of Perth has an interest and around the world has an interest, but do you have an interest in the case? Uh, I think it, I think it would be unperth like to not take, take an interest in this case. You, you had to be hiding under a rock for a number of years to know nothing about it. Um, I, I've absolutely got an interest in it. I was, um, at the time that these offences happened, I was uh, a teenager and, you know, these were th things we were seeing in the news and, and there was kind of a change, I suppose, in the way that Perth... Um, worked in terms of um, went f I suppose from probably being a, a, what we saw as I suppose a safe uh, small city to and it, I, I suppose it brought a bit of reality to the fact that these things can happen in our in our own little backyard and um, yeah I think it that's that's probably a, a large reason why a lot of people are interested in it because it really probably did shape and change Perth at the time. Yeah, and we know that as we're moving forward in the trial that really from here on in, forensics are going to play an extraordinarily large part of this case, um, which is why your experience and knowledge is going to be very relevant to what we're talking about next. So, Emily and Tim, um, today you heard in great detail about the evidence that was collected um, from the two crime scenes. Yeah, so Robert Hemler um, was back on the stand um, today again, so... He sort of went through like step by step in minute detail of what they did at Jane Wimmer's crime scene and then what they did at Kira Glennon's crime scene. Um, and basically he was the supervisor for the forensic teams um, sort of at sort of in 1996-1997 and he was also involved in the missing persons case for Jane Wimmer. Um, and we also heard today that he was also asked 
by the Macro Task Force to also, when Kira went missing before they had found her body, to also go out and take photos re- relating to where she had been and, and, and things like that. So we heard a lot from him today. The whole day was dedicated to, to um, Mr Hemler. Um, and he, apart from sort of being asked questions by um, Miss Barbagello, he was also um, narrating or giving running commentary on the videos the footage that we can't see, which was sort of a, a I guess, a blessing for us in some ways, because mm-hmm. otherwise we'd be s- sitting there in court, not hearing or seeing anything. But at least he was providing that running commentary, and I have to say his commentary today was obviously it was a lot better than yesterday. So um, from my perspective, doing the blog, it was it was actually nice to actually have something to write about um, what I was hearing him describing at, at both scenes, which was um, some of it was quite harrowing, harrowing at times. So. Yeah, I mean, he basically walked us through the, the, the both scenes, but particular um, Kira's scene um, this morning and then this afternoon, and the, the the video that was that was taken at the scene was a lot longer than the one that was played um, at, at Jane's scene. It went for for over an hour, and Mr. Hemlar was intimately involved in the. Uh, in the recovery um, of of the body, and then obviously taking the exhibits from that from the from Kira's body as well, and so he basically walked us through everything that was happening on screen, and then uh, also what he'd done um, post the scene as well, which included going and taking uh, fibre samples from Kira's house where she lived with her mum and dad, from her work, from her office, from her car, from. Um, her dad's car, um, which we now know, I mean, it was obviously relevant then, but it's going to be extraordinarily relevant now, given that given that fibres are going to play a major part in, in the prosecution case. I guess the volume of material that must be collected is, is enormous. Oh, certainly not. I mean, we've, we've spoken so many times about the vastness of the, the prosecution brief and the case in general, and the forensic material makes up a, a, a big part of that massive case uh, all the all the samples that were collected uh, on the day vegetation we heard of today intimately um, insects we heard about today and obviously we've already heard about the hair samples there'll be skin samples and uh, uh, you know swabs taken certainly at Jane's scene and, and, and definitely at Kira's as well so that, I mean, the, 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 just the bulk of the material it itself is is in- intimidating. But then, as until Brennan will be able to tell us in, in much more detail the, the, the work that then goes into it after it's 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 taken and when it gets to the lab would would would, would double or triple or quadruple that um, that quantity. I'm guessing. Yeah, that's that's right, Tim. And I mean, this is the sort of blessing that we really hope for um, in cold cases is access to heaps and heaps of evidence from the primary scene um, mm-hmm. so really um, credit credit to the guys at the time for having that sort of insight because um, there's nothing worse than trying to look historically back at a cold case and having you know only a handful of exhibits when you've got um, an abundance and it, and it creates a lot of work at the front end of, it mm-hmm. in, of an investigation but when you've got such an abundance of exhibits like like they've got here it really does provide you with multiple opportunities um, at a later stage when um, you know technology advances or new techniques of analysing evidence come about. So, um, but you're right that once 
once this is all collected, there is a huge amount of work that follows thereafter. Um, to give you an example of, um, you know, a, a sample where, say, a single swab might be collected of some blood or DNA or something like that, there's a huge amount of work um, and expense as well that goes on after that in, in order to generate um, a result that then, you know, can point us to an offender or an individual. So how critical is time? So when a, a scene like this um, happens, how fast do the forensics get called out? And does every second count because you need to get out there to preserve that scene? Yeah, when when evidence is, uh, I suppose, in the wild um, or, or out within the public, there's there are a number of things that can come to play that can contaminate that or um, destroy evidence. So the response to um, a forensic scene or the collection of forensic evidence is important. It's important to get to it quickly um, and to collect it. But we've got a huge amount of um, supporting research and understanding now and, and even at the time of this case with regards to how to collect and store evidence um, once we've recovered it from a scene that kind of stops the clock um, on any uh, degradation of, of things like DNA. Um, so a, a quick response to a crime scene and then getting things into a secure storage and maintaining that uh, chain of custody is really then a great... We can come back to that because we know how to store it, we know how to maintain it. I'm sorry, Brendan, and those, those methods of, of time capture... I mean, I was, I'm guessing they, they'd be a lot more advanced now than they were back in 96 and 97, but they were still very effective back then? Yeah, that's correct. In fact, it, it hasn't really changed much, um, oh, well. if, if at all, to be honest, because we yeah. even, in, even in the 90s we had a, a really good understanding of um, how DNA is um, retained and, and, and kept intact, because while DNA may be reasonably... Um, young I suppose to the forensic field it's certainly not something that we haven't known about for a long time we've, we've got a very good understanding of DNA and have for a number of decades so um, in, in regard to preserving that evidence um, really the techniques for storing and maintaining evidence that were used in the 90s really haven't changed at all to today. How um, in terms of DNA in ter- when, when it's collected um, obviously if the body if it's sort of found sort of straight away does that mean that the, the DNA is better preserved or as say if the body was found two months later? I suppose it, de- it depends a lot on, on whose DNA you're looking for. Obviously the DNA of the, the person or, or the, the body um, does degrade um, and does degrade reasonably quickly because um, the body goes through stages of decomposition and as part of that um, there's a number of biochemical um, things that go on that do destroy DNA Um, they're the same mechanisms that go about that make us decompose Um, by the same token if there's any foreign DNA on a body that is decomposing the same agents playing at destroying that DNA certainly come into play. There's also a huge range of environmental factors as well. So UV light um, can destroy DNA or damage DNA. So just um, an exhibit or something being out in the open and in the sun um, is is working away at and ensuring that 
that DNA is broken down, as well as bacteria and, and a huge range of other things, which is why it is important to get to a scene as soon as possible. Tim mentioned earlier about the manner of things that were collected at these scenes. So when you arrive at um, a site such as this, what are you looking for? What are all the things you're looking for? There's a, a huge process that you go through. Um, crime scene investigation is is a really process-driven um, area. And so you, you go through this stepwise process of firstly trying to establish where your scene starts and where your scene ends. Because we don't... You guys come along to a scene and the media and the public come along to a scene and, and there's a blue and white piece of tape and that's where you know the scene finishes there and, mm. and I can walk up to it. But that piece of tape doesn't get there without a bit of forethought. So we need to try and work out where that, that scene starts and finishes. And that's kind of the first thing we need to do. And that's what we call a scene cordon. Yeah. Um, and once we've set that, hopefully with a large degree of um, certainty that we've set that at the right point, um, we then work our way in. Um, and in a scene where you have, uh, in a homicide scene where you have a body, obviously you've got a very central point to to what's going on and from there it's just a methodic process of working your way in ensuring that any any movements or any steps or any procedures that you go through aren't at the expense of any other evidence mm -hmm. so you'll see one of the first things is we obviously want to get to that body we want to see what's happening we want to try and evaluate um, what we have in front of us here but at the same time we can't just go charging in and and get straight to, to a body without determining whether in doing so we're destroying, say for instance, uh, footprints left behind by the, by the offender. So we go through this methodical process um, and then the other factor at play there is while we don't want to rush to the body, we also want to get that body out of a scene as quick as possible because we want to get it into a preserved environment and into a into a mortuary and a refrigerated environment where we can we can put a stop to decomposition and, and the destruction of further evidence there. So it's quite a it's quite a balancing act in terms of making sure we get in and get the the body out to a safe place, but at the same time also making sure that we don't rush in. I think that's sort of what they sort of described today with the orange cones or the witches hats. They were saying um, sort of Miss Hamill was saying when when they got there they sort of the initial cordon had already been set up with the the I think with the Sergeant Detective Carver and um, Detective Besson who had already arrived with Mr Atkinson who found Kira's body, and then some of the uniform officers who was stationed there. And they sort of said today they 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 went in, and sort of they were led by Mr Besson. And as they were sort of walking in, they sort of placed these orange cones so where they thought they could go in and out. So and and that kind of makes sense now that you've been explaining sort of why that yeah. these cones have been put in place and and so that was quite heavily explored by um, Miss Barbagallo today as well with asking the questions of you know when were they placed, why were they placed, and what was the reasons for it. Yeah, and that's what we call a common approach path. And the reason for that is if everyone traffics in and out of the crime scene th through the same pathway. Um, then we, if once we've cleared that pathway in and out of a scene, we know that we're not destroying any evidence. And everyone uses the same pathway to ensure that we're not just, you know, trampling around the, the surrounding bushland. And once you've, you've got into that pathway and you've reached the body, 
um, it's not just the body you're looking at. You're looking at the vegetation around the body and insects and all these kinds of extra things. Yeah, we're, we're with any crime scene, we're really looking at two two opportunities. One is the opportunity that something foreign has been brought into the scene and the other opportunity is that something from within the scene has been taken out or changed or you know or modified. So um where it's it's looking at anything that looks unusual and it's using a st- systematic search approach as well to identifying things like damaged um, vegetation or um, impression or, or shoe impression or shoe footprints going in or, or out of a scene um, the other thing with dis- disposing of a body is it's very difficult to bring a body into a scene without some, either some sort of assistance or obviously dragging a body from somewhere so they're the sort of marks we're looking at um, because if there's drag marks up to the deposition site of a body then that can give us an indication of the, the approach that the the offender may, may have taken. Um, one of the other common things, and we've heard this today as well, is is the use of surrounding vegetation to disguise or, or conceal a body. Um, and I've seen a number of uh, these these type of scenes where an offender has utilised surrounding vegetation or broken vegetation off surrounding trees to to attempt to conceal or cover up a body. Yeah, they were sort of talking about that today, sort of, I think, to the latter part of um, Mr. Hamley's evidence where he was saying there was photographs that we could see today of him um, with a, a, t- a measuring stick of some of the trees where the twigs and the branches or were pulled from the tree and he said, like, the, the bark was pulled from it that was used to sort of hide um, Kira's body in, in the, the, the scrubland. So he was there, there was a, a number of photos of, of him standing there, which was, I think, 1.7 metres, I think, the size of the stick was so that's what he was sort of saying and the other important thing from those types of pieces of evidence are uh, when you when you're evaluating a scene you're looking for any evidence of the offender being in contact with something and if you've got a branch or a stick or a, something broken off then you instantly know that the offender has had contact with that and and where there is contact there is a possibility for a transfer of dna or fingerprints or, or fibers or any other type of evidence so, Tim, uh, was there some significance in some of those things that were collected in terms of uh, DNA and fibres? Oh, certainly not. I mean, the, the, the exhibits taken from Kira's body during the recovery process and then also during the post-mortem process are some of the most priceless and important exhibits in this whole, whole trial. Um, we've heard, obviously... Uh, the prosecution alleged that under one of her broken fingernails is or was Mr. Edwards's DNA, which uh, they say it got there during the uh, the, the struggle before Kira died. Uh, the the hair, and, and we saw the first photo of of the the sample RH17, which is said, which was a, a sample of Kira's hair, which is said to contain some of the fibres which the prosecution point to as connecting Mr Edwards um, and uh, Kira's hair mass um, and, and Mr Hamlar did collect some of those so he um, concluded his evidence in chief today and so tomorrow morning at, at 10 o'clock is the cross-examination of Mr Hamlar by 
Paul Jovic will commence and I'm sure we will hear a lot more about how those exhibits were collected, how they were stored, uh, uh, where they were stored and obviously all that goes to the contamination that the defence say occurred at some point between the discovery of Kira's body by Mr Atkinson and uh, uh, and uh, Mr Edwards being charged nearly t- 24 years later. One of the other things that sort of um, in the running commentary that Mr Hemler provided the court and us um, was that he like um, he was talking about what can be seen sort of through that whole process. So we're saying like Dr. Karen Margolis, who is now deceased, um, was sort of going through her, the stages of when they start to take the vegetation off Kira's body, when they start to then look at her body in situ, then taking photographs of that, and then sort of when they decide to move her over and, um, and taking sort of things that she's noticed. And because the video that's being played, because we can't see it, we're just listening to the audio, um, one of the main things you can quite hear is the helicopter whirring above, but occasionally when it goes away, you can hear these snippets of people's voices. And one of the things that we heard was Dr. Margolis sort of talking about um, Kira's hands and her fingernails. And one of the things that she talks about is the, the left thumbnail and another um, part she's talking about, the ring finger on her right hand is shorter, or the ring fingernail is, is shorter on her right hand. Um, and then she goes, I don't know if this is broken, but it's shorter than the others. It's pretty short. And then a male voice who we don't know who it is just sort of says oh the rest of the fingernails are there sort of question mark sort of thing um and it's those little snippets that we were able to hear that because we can't see the footage it's sort of going okay so that's when they sort of noticed even then that there was you know that that her fingernails and obviously her left thumb and middle finger uh left thing middle finger is also sort of what the prosecution say is important and where they claim that um dna from mr edwards is has been found so, Brendan, just in a general sense, how is DNA taken from underneath someone's fingernail in a scientific way? Yeah, there's a couple of approaches that we can use. Um, the first of which is is to take a swab. Um, and when I say swab, I'm referring to um, the sort of thing that most of the listeners would understand as the, the cotton tips that you're not supposed to put in your ear. Um, <laughs> and that's very similar to, to what a swab is. Um, and so we use a, a swab to collect any material from under underneath the fingernail. Um, and that's just as simple as a damp swab r- running that underneath the, the, the fingernail. Um, the other approach that can be taken, which is more of an approach taken by forensic pathologists and, and at, in a mortuary um, or post-mortem situation, is actually clipping the fingernails off and collecting those into, into a container that we can then um, extract the DNA from, from under the fingernails. And then once you have that DNA... Um, you really effectively have frozen it in time. So the uh, passage of time doesn't degrade it in any way. No. um, The techniques we use for extracting DNA uh, really stabilise it. Um, They they take it out, they, they uh, they aim to remove it away from any of those other factors that can... Uh, degrade and break down DNA and isolate it in a in a tube that we can then freeze and, and keep away indefinitely. And is there any way in which um, you know this sort of thing can be contaminated or is it done in a, a locked room that you can only get in by going through a padlocked door or how does that happen? There's 
no such thing as completely eliminating contamination um, unless we can can completely eliminate people there's always <laughs> an opportunity for there to be contamination in a DNA lab um, but modern state-run DNA laboratories in Australia because Australia has an incredibly high standard to this sort of work um, all exercise incredibly stringent procedures and quality assurance processes to make the opportunity for that as minimal as possible. It's not to say that it can't happen, it's not to say that it won't happen, but we certainly here in this country are very lucky in that um, we, we really do utilise the best practices that are available worldwide. I feel like that's a conversation that we might be having quite often <laughs> in, the, in the coming weeks and months, Brendan, because as we've, as we've heard um, very briefly, but quite pointedly in Mr. Jovic's opening statement many, many weeks ago, that is, he, he, they are the cards that he intends to play um, to, to point to what he says were contamination events uh, on other um, samples taken in both Jane and Kira's case, and then in particular this DNA sample, which he is, we think, going to explore. He uh, that's uh, that has somehow come from another uh, exhibit in another case, i.e., the Karakata rape case that we know of, and has somehow found its way um, onto that fingernail um, taken from. Kira's body, and um, th that is a that is a very forensic journey that we're all going to go on. I think. Um, Tim mentioned earlier about fibre being found um, in Jane Rimmer's hair. When you find a fibre, how do you then go about identifying that and matching that to anything? Is it then a matter of going out and and taking samples of all sorts of different fibres to try and find a match to that? Yeah, when, when we compare a, a, a whole range of things in forensics, what we, we have is what's called a, a, a reference or an exemplar sample that we're trying to compare to. So in the case of, say, a fibre that you found at a crime scene, we would look to identify sources of, of clothing or sources of fibres um, that we can compare microscopically um, to see if they exhibit the same characteristics. And, and, and the most obvious characteristic is colour. So immediately if we have a, a red fibre, we then go looking for examples of red fibres, um, either that the, um, that the victim might, might own or, or within their vehicle or within their workplace, um, to compare and see, is this the same red? Um, is it the same colour? Does it exhibit the same sort of... Um, the same sort of characteristics in how the fibre has been developed, how it's been um, manufactured. Is it actually made of the same type of material? Is, is it wool? Is it a polyester? So on and so forth. We heard a bit of that today with um, Ms Hamler saying that after um, they discovered Kira's body, they went back to her workplace and they tested the, the blue ribbon in her diary and then there was blue um, wrapping ribbon, which I think was um, part of the present that she was, she'd bought for her sister because it was her sister's hen's night the following night the night after she disappeared. Um, they also talked about how they 
went back to the Glennon's home. I think they went back twice and collected um, a fibre sample from Dennis Glennon's car and then um, fibres from Mrs Glennon's um, sewing room and in particular her sewing, I think it was her sewing pencil, I think he said as well. So they sort of, as, and Mr Hamley said on the, on the stand, it was, you know, a process, they were collecting him as a process of elimination as yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. The, the aim there is to be able to say, well, it wasn't this, it wasn't this, it wasn't this, um, until you get to a sample or, or, or a potential person of interest that we can then look at fibres that they may have or, or have been in contact with and, and do the same process. It's all just eliminating um, those fibres from being the same as the, as the ones you've found. And when you oh, say for, testing... Sorry, Nat, yeah, for, no, fear go of, f- for fear of being accused of being pro-Perth biased, um, we do have in Western Australia, um, Brendan will correct me if I'm wrong here, but we have one of only two sort of fibre databases um, in the world um, based in in Western Australia where um, all these exemplar samples from hundreds of thousands of carpets and and car seats and and various other fibre samples have been collated and and that database is, is searchable. Um, and I, under, I think that, that that database has been utilised um, in in latter years in in the Claremont case in the macro investigation to to search for where some of these fibres that were found on 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 both Jane and Kira came from. Yeah, that's correct, Tim, and and well done on your research. <laughs> um, and, and that's well, actually, pay me the small bucks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually um, subject of a, of a published piece of research as well. So yeah, you're absolutely correct. How do you actually test the fibre? Do you pop it under a microscope, or how does that happen? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's that's the first the first pass is to um, have a look under look at it under a microscope, compare it to those those other examples to to rule out some of the more um, gross or, or the more obvious features like colour and, and, the, and the way that the fibre is constructed. Um, further to that, we've, we've got techniques that can utilise um, various scientific approaches. I won't go into detail about them, but um, to exploit some of the properties that are, that are not immediately visible with regards to the fibre. So we can use strange types of light um, and we can ultimately destroy the fibre as well through analysis techniques that can tell us about the the molecular makeup of how, how the fibre is constructed as well. What about when you're talking about an article of clothing? Has um, standard practice changed over the years? I mean, if you're at a scene and you're taking, for instance, a pair of shorts nowadays, what would they go into? Would they go into a lock zipped bag or what would happen nowadays? Yeah, so I, to answer the first part of the question, nothing's really changed um, because it all comes back to those fundamental principles of maintaining the, the um, firstly the, the continuity of the evidence and so making sure that it's sealed and stored but also maintaining that any evidence on it doesn't degrade or, or, or get damaged i.e. DNA. So um, the technique, to use your example, is a, a, of a pair of shorts is where um, we would seal that in a, in a paper bag. And this is where you see the forensic guys walking out of crime scenes with these big brown paper bags. Um, we would put it into a paper bag. And, and the reason for using paper is that it's, it's breathable and it can allow, if there are, is any 
even slight moisture in that sample, it can dry and, and not go mouldy. Um, and then once we, we have it in a paper bag, we then seal it and we seal it with uh, what's called evidence tape or, or, or tamper-proof tape, which is uh, this special tape that you can stick across the opening of the bag um, and you can't then remove it without damaging it. And that seal can be signed. Um, it's similar to the sort of things that banks move money with and, and, and valuables like that. So once a, the pair of shorts is sealed in that bag, um, we can then take that to a secure, secure storage location. And if it's kept at a cool, in a cool environment in the dark, that's really quite stable for a number of years or, or decades even. I just wanted to ask Emily and Tim um, Bradley Edwards he was in court of course today um, was he reacting to any of the video or any of the evidence being presented today? Yeah uh, like obviously intermittently I'd sort of look up and, and check what he was doing and it's sort of at one point he was sort of watching and taking notes um, this time I think for most of the day he like I know yesterday we said he was sort of twiddling his thumbs or today he had a pen as well so he was sort of twiddling with that as well but he was at at some points like writing and taking notes and then at others he was just watching but he definitely was watching the screen that's in front of him. And it must have been quite a difficult day for Kira's father today? Oh definitely not um it was it was difficult for all of us even though we couldn't see the the footage we could hear enough as we mentioned yesterday, to visualise what was going on. Um, but Dennis was was in court, um, as, as stoic as he always is, and um, he, he bore witness uh, to that evidence again um, and uh, obviously wanted to be, to be there for his daughter, as he has been for, for so many years. But, yeah, no doubt it was um, very, very difficult for him um, as it was for the rest of us but but obviously most difficult for for Dennis mm. and Brendan we speak about this quite often in the podcast about you know these are graphic details and you know they're very very upsetting and they're very traumatic and how difficult it is for people to listen to them but for someone like you who does this job you must get asked all the time how do you do this job yeah it's um it is almost the first question everyone asks mm. is, oh, you must see some horrible things. Um, and yeah, that's that's 100% correct. Um, and it's, it's as, as scientists, I suppose, we're, we're uh, probably a little bit more immune to it than the general public because we, we kind of understand that it's just all part of the natural process. At the same time, some of this can be really quite horrific. Um, people can be bloody horrible to be honest um and it's i think that's really important where or it's really important to have good support networks in this type of industry whether that's family whether that's friends whether there's a, a, a formal way of debriefing through whatever agency you work for and and all of these agencies do have those sort of approaches and and you know mental health is a big thing these days and so it's important to keep your mental health tuned tuned up just like you would service your car I suppose so um, I think it is important to debrief um, and and whether that's sitting down with your colleagues and, and having a beer after and just winding down or if that's going home and just spending time with your family kids wh whoever whoever you have at home um, it's important to have work-life balance 
especially in this sort of industry. Well, as always, thank you both for being in court again today and for all your hard work. And if listeners would like more details about the evidence that was presented in court today, you can find it at thewest.com.au and you can also find Tim's articles in the newspaper. Thank you also to Brendan for joining us. Um, I think it's very helpful because you obviously give listeners an idea of how the process actually works and fits into the details that we're hearing in this case. So thanks for listening and we'll be back tomorrow to chat again when we wrap up the end of the week. Claremont in Conversation. Chat to you then. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont The Trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.